Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming to this, the latest in our series, LSE European Institute series, Perspectives on Europe, which we organise jointly with ACPO Worldwide Perspectives and today with the European Foreign Policy Unit. I am Damien Chalmers, I'm head of the European Institute here at the LSE, and today it's a great pleasure to, wo to welcome, and one can see from full room, Dr. Danilo Turk, the President of Slovenia, as our speaker, who's going to talk on the EU as a global player, reality or illusion. Now, when we have heads of state here, it is, we always talk about their distinguished hinterlands uh, prior to their becoming politicians. And that is no less true in this case. Dr. Turk has had a distinguished career, both in diplomacy and as an academic. I'll talk a little bit about the first one, which is particularly rele relevant to the, uh, the talk, but I'd also like to talk a little bit about the second in due course, which has more personal interest. He had a distinguished uh, career as the permanent representative of Slovenia to the United Nations. He's also had a distinguished career advising amnesty and also as a special rapporteur to the UN on social, cultural and economic rights. His career in diplomacy is really second to none. So to have a sense of what goes on in the international field, both from, if you like, its heart for the United Nations and from the position of you know, a player that punches above its weight, there is no one better to talk to us. He has also had a distinguished career as a law academic. He first joined, or first taught at the Faculty of Law in Ljubljana back in 1978 and has regularly returned there. On a personal note, I was fortunate enough to go and teach there back in 1998, where they were foolish enough to ask me to teach them EU law. It was, I have to say, a great experience. No one can think too, too highly enough about the quality of the faculty there, which has been built up by a very special small group of academics. When I was there, I was with my friend Joseph Weiler, who is a well-known professor of EU law and international law, and was then at Harvard. Uh, Weiler told me that at that time, and for the three years afterwards, Harvard was taking more Slovenians than Germans on its LLM program, the main master's program that it has in law, which is a testament, I think, both to Dr. Turk and to his colleagues at the faculty. He will speak for half an hour, and then we will take questions. I hope you will warmly welcome him to the stage. Thank you, Professor Chalmers, for this very warm welcome and this very friendly introduction. Obviously, you are right when you talked about Ljubljana and Slovenia and about the qualities of law faculty, although I must say that the achievements at that time had nothing to do with my work because I was at that time working in New York as the Slovenian ambassador to the United Nations. But I'm very glad to accept the uh, nice uh, words that you addressed to the, to the law faculty of Ljubljana, which is really a great school, and I would advise you to use the um, uh, facilities of various programs of the European Union, including uh, Socrates' program, which allows young people to travel to other places and to do a semester in, uh, in a university other than their own. I'm very happy to be here tonight and to see among you quite a few friends of mine from earlier days. I'm very happy, and particularly I'm happy to see my daughter, Helena, 
who is always very critical, and uh, that, I can assure you, gives me a sense of trepidation when I'm starting. But hopefully I will recover as I proceed, and I do expect your questions and comments, because uh, as a former academic, I particularly enjoy meeting people in the academic uh, environment like this. And I'm sure that there are many uh, questions that arise these days uh, when people ask uh, the question that is put as the title of my talk, that is, is European Union a global player? Is this a reality or is this an illusion? Or how will the future of European Union as a global player look like? Obviously, these are very serious, very difficult questions which have been there for a long time. And um, one has to take a um, rather limited view in a 30 minutes, uh, which is available for, for a basic definition of an approach to the problem. My approach is this. I believe that uh, in the last decade and earlier, the European Union lived in, in what could, could be called uh, a phase of institutional optimism. Now, of course, institutional optimism has always been there with the European Union, but at the time of preparation of the Lisbon Treaty, that optimism was particularly high, and the belief that things happen as a result of norms and institutions was very strong. Uh, now, of course, that extended also to an idea that uh, the strengthened institutions and norms of the European Union will, in a way, automatically establish a meaningful global role for the organization. On the other hand, uh, it was also noted that uh, another set of activities of the European Union related to what was called the Lisbon Strategy, a document which was adopted uh, um, several years earlier on economic and social development of the uh, area, was not successful. So we had a kind of a um, dichotomy or perhaps a contradiction, uh, an institutionally optimistic approach, at the same time an experience which was not all that optimistic with regard to the question of how does European Union improve its competitiveness, how does it ensure its social cohesion and make itself a leading power of the world development. Now, this was the situation until recently. The current situation is characterized by another set of problems which arise from the current financial crisis, which has revealed the weaknesses of the EU as a project. It has also shown that uh, the size of EU economy alone uh, and the fact that it continues to be the largest donor in international development assistance do not produce a key role in international affairs, especially at the time of Copenhagen Conference they became visible. That became visible, that was even before the current financial crisis started. And uh, vulnerabilities of European Union are perhaps clearer than they were before. Uh, that has given rise to a certain amount of pessimism at home, pessimism in the European Union, and rather critical views outside the European Union, views which sometimes amount to dismissive attitudes which are really quite fashionable uh, outside the European Union, and perhaps also sometimes inside the European Union. So we have a psychological situation which really calls for very careful assessment. And I believe that in such an assessment it is important to re remind ourselves that the European Union is based on a very solid foundation of shared values such as peace, liberty, solidarity, market economy, great values which have really brought stability, an unprecedented level of stability to the European continent and which continue to remain the source of hope and promise for the future. But obviously, when one talks about the need to develop European Union into a global player, then the question is, what would be the priority tasks, what would be the priority requirements of 
such a role? What what would make European Union such a such a player? Now, I believe, and my proposal for discussion tonight is that there are three essential requirements which have to be followed. One is the need to succeed in dealing with the current euro crisis, because the European Union has to demonstrate its effectiveness in the crisis management if it wishes to preserve and further develop the European economic and social model, to preserve credibility which it needs at the international level, and to become effective as an international player. Secondly, and very important, I believe that the European Union has to develop a clearer sense of hierarchy among its geopolitical priorities and a more coherent foreign and security policy. Now, there, of course, are elements, there are contours of such a common um, foreign and security policy, but those contours do not yet uh, represent a fully-fledged policy, and, of course, there is a scope for a debate what should the priorities be and how should those priorities be achieved. And third, and I believe a quite important aspect, is that European Union needs to develop or to strengthen a realistic and honest, honest policy on human rights, both at home and internationally. It has to strengthen it all, its own social basis and exert its moral influence internationally. Of course, I deliberately avoid here the, the, the terminology of soft power, uh, but I do speak about the uh, moral influence that European Union has exerted in the past, is exerting at present, and should exert in the future. But for that to be a reality, the human rights policy has to become more sophisticated. Now, these are my three proposals. They are somewhat arbitrarily chosen, as any hypothesis is. And obviously, there may be other ways of approaching the problem, and I would be glad to hear your views on those other, other approaches. First, let me, let me say a few words about each of these three areas in which three, three requirements which I believe have to be met if the European Union is to develop a meaningful global role at present. First, the financial crisis of 2010, which, as I said, revealed the weaknesses of the Union, and it revealed that the monetary and fiscal framework of the European Monetary Union is incomplete. The rules-based framework of fiscal policy created by the excessive deficit procedure and primarily by the Stability and Growth Pact was insufficient to prevent the current debt crisis despite its stringent rules demanding low budget deficits and budgetary planning. It should also be borne in mind that those rules were violated in the past by some of the key members of the European Union and that of course has decreased the authority of those rules and of the whole system. Following the financial crisis in Greece, the EU established the European Financial Stability Facility, which amounts in total, including the uh, part uh, provided by the International Monetary Fund, to 750 billion euro. Now, this financial stability facility is put to a test in dealing with the current financial crisis in Ireland. It can provide, and it, I believe, will provide the necessary liquidity, which, uh, which is uh, part of um, negotiations which are taking place right now. But, of course, the question of external debt of that country and the questions of insolvency of banks uh, require a wider package, which will take a time, some time to work out. And policy measures need to be put in place. They will probably have to include IMF, uh, private banks, and other actors. And... Uh, the question of debt restructuring is likely to be continue to be discussed. 
I, of course, cannot say much more about this simply because I don't know exactly how the negotiations are taking place, but one can clearly see the immediate tasks which relate to the question of liquidity and dealing with the current situation, and of course a deeper question of the size and the nature of the debt involved and of course the variety of actors which have to be put into the picture if the problem is to be resolved on the long term. Now, uh, this is the current crisis situation, but of course the European Union is aware of the fact that there is a need for a more permanent mechanism and therefore, as, as you all know, on 29 October this year the European Council decided to establish what was called a permanent crisis mechanism to safeguard the financial stability of the euro area as a whole and to invite the President of the Council to undertake consultations with members of the Council on a limited treaty change required to that effect. Now, this was a quote from the decision of 29 October. Now, the legal problem of that approach should not be underestimated. The Lisbon Treaty will have to undergo what was termed in that decision, and I quote, a limited treaty change. I like this terminology, a limited treaty change. What, what exactly does it mean? Is this another example of legal camouflage, which is sometimes so helpful in the EU matters? And, of course, how will that case uh, affect the authority of the Lisbon Treaty? Being a professor of international law, I'm always worried when I see treaties being changed so soon after they enter into force. That inevitably has an adverse effect on their authority. And obviously this is something to be kept in mind. I'm not suggesting any particular effect of it, but I'm suggesting that there is a problem. Now, the other problem, of course, is much deeper and more complex. And the question is, what will constitute this permanent crisis mechanism or crisis resolution mechanism. Who initiates the process? How will that system work? The European Commission? Uh, somebody else? A new organ of the EU, perhaps? Uh, which organ should conduct negotiations between the debtor country and creditors? Should the European Financial Stability Facility, which is now in place until the year 2013, uh, become permanent under the new system? And should it then, of course, it should become permanent, that's, that's the whole idea, uh, should, uh, what, what should be its purpose? Should it be addressing the issues of liquidity primarily, or should it also be there to deal with the questions of insolvency of debtor states? Now that, of course, will have to be clarified, and I wonder whether that clarification will be forthcoming before the end of this year when, the, uh, when another round of discussion on this sub subject is, is planned. And obviously, I think another major legal policy and strategic question is the role of the International Monetary Fund in this system. I happen to believe that the International Monetary Fund is useful in this kind of situations, that it has been useful in the Greek situation, in the current situation concerning Ireland, and it will probably have to be in, pic in the picture for the permanent crisis resolution mechanism as well. How that would work and what role that would have is something to be discussed further. Now, the introduction of the European Crisis Resolution Mechanism is essential if one wishes to establish the necessary degree of financial stability and through it the necessary credibility of the European Union. But sometimes one thinks about problems which loom on the horizon, which are not yet fully developed in the current discussions, but have to be given uh, some attention. I was wondering if any of you has been thinking about writing a thesis on the question of turning the European Monetary Union into a fully-fledged fiscal union. What kind of tasks would that entail in terms of economic 
uh, aspects in terms of legal regulation and whether that is feasible at all. Now, of course, the current discussions have led to mentions, to, to references to a fiscal union, and there are many who would say, well, that's a necessary line of development for the future. Uh, some would even say that the amounts needed for the establishment of such a system would not necessarily be very large. Uh, but, of course, the question of financial resources is only one of the questions. There are much more sensitive questions beyond that, and I do not wish to speculate on where the development will go. But for you, this might be an interesting question, and I'm wondering whether any of you has been giving any thought to it, to the legal, political, financial complexity of this uh, idea, and uh, what, what that idea would, would entail. Obviously, the seriousness of the problem has to be recognized because it's quite, quite uh, conceivable that if uh, the system doesn't integrate further, that it may in fact lead to a split uh, of, the, of the European Union or even Eurozone area into two parts uh, among those who need credit for uh, overcoming their financial difficulties and those who are continuously asked to supply funds. And you can imagine that for a country like Slovenia this is an extremely sensitive political matter. We have been confronted with this kind of donorship role for the second time in a short period of, uh, of time and that hasn't been easy politically because uh, Slovenia has joined the Eurozone and the Schengen area in 2007 and uh, since then, uh, the people have accepted euro as their currency. Nobody is thinking about alternatives. Nevertheless, when we are told to demonstrate solidarity uh, in, with regard to situations which are characterized by uh, behavior which, which may be disguised, uh, described as problematic, then you can clearly imagine the political difficulties which arise. I'm sure that these discussions are taking place everywhere in Europe, but I would like to say that Slovenia is a new country, a country which doesn't really require any assistance, which has a fairly good set of figures with regard to the public debt, with regard to the, to the um, budget deficit, not ideal, but, but manageable. Uh, has these questions as, as quite serious questions. Now, um, I would like to mention that, that obviously this is a difficult situation, everybody is aware of that, but also one which is not entirely new in its nature, it's not entirely new to the European Union. I would like to recall that European Union was able, or European Community was able earlier on to turn crisis into opportunities. Uh, the Eurosclerosis of 1980s is an example, uh, which was then a precursor to the Single European Act, which was adopted in 1986. And I remember as a professor at the time how powerful mobilizing effect that change has produced. There was a lot of talk about Eurosclerosis and Euroscepticism then things changed into a single European Act, and all of a sudden I got uh, a number of requests by students to study European Union law because the credibility of, of the system was improved practically overnight. And the question, you know, whether we are able to, to turn things in a similar manner today is really an interesting one. I'm not suggesting that I know the answer, I'm not suggesting that this is even likely, but I, I, I retain a certain residual optimism in that regard and I hope that something positive will happen in the months and the years to come. Now, let us take a, 
an optimistic view of these things, and let us then recall that in addition to dealing with the most immediate questions of financial stability, there are other important tasks ahead of the European Union if it wishes to strengthen its internal cohesion and be effective internationally. One is, we should not forget, the completion of single market. Uh, earlier this year, we have seen uh, an interesting report by Mario Monti, uh, we, who has described the tasks with, in that regard. Uh, the single market has been established, but there are tasks which remain, including the movement of people within the European Union. Those kind of tasks be, are now not in the forefront. This is not a priority at this moment. But uh, when things are moving forward, then this, this type of priorities will come more to the front. To from. The question of competitiveness and how to improve competitiveness and at the same time retain or even improve social cohesion will also be among these issues. Now all this constitutes the agenda for strengthening the European Union as an economic and social system, uh, economic and financial system, which is a fundamental uh, requirement for a global role. You, you can see that this requirement is far from being met and therefore European Union has to put its house in order if it wishes to play an active and meaningful global role. Now let me briefly address <coughs> another requirement and that is <coughs> a coherent foreign and security policy. I guess that um, hypothesis that a coherent foreign policy is needed for a meaningful global role is a plausible hypothesis. But we have to be aware that this uh, coherence is not easy to establish. European Union is not a nation state. Uh, the uh, German Constitutional Court has reminded us of that in its uh, pronouncement in June last year, very clearly and in a very detailed fashion. And we have to be aware that creation of such a policy is something that takes time and effort. The creation of the external service, which has uh, consumed much of the energy uh, this year, uh, is necessary. But the question is whether it is decisive. Uh, I'm not so sure about this. Uh, I think that the uh, European Union has to do two things. It has to improve its institutional system, but above all, it has to define uh, the hierarchy among the, its foreign policy priorities. Uh, one can say that uh, these two tasks look a little bit like a chicken and egg dilemma. What comes first? Uh, can one expect uh, institutions uh, like an external service to be put to good use if the priorities are not set clearly. Uh, alternatively, one could say, well, it is possible that such a system, such a foreign service would help in articulation of priorities with greater clarity and therefore it is timely to, to focus on that task. Well, be that as it may, I believe that it's wise to have a, an improved external service, but it's even more important to have clearer priorities. Uh, what should those priorities be? Let me again somewhat arbitrarily suggest three proposals, which uh, I hope will generate some interest and possibly discussion. First, I think that the first priority, the, the first foreign, priori foreign policy priority should be partnership and cooperation with the countries of Eastern Partnership and Russian Federation. Second, the priority should be, the second priority should be the expansion or enlargement of EU membership with the Balkan countries and Turkey. And the third, visa liberalization. 
Now, this may look a little bit unusual given the entire range of issues that the European Union is addressing and a variety of setting of priorities that we normally see in literature. But I took advantage of the fact that you invited me to speak and therefore I decided to propose um, a few ideas of my own. Uh, and that is not only uh, a result of the fact that I was on an official <laughs> visit to Russia last week, uh, but I have been thinking about this for a longer period of time, and I believe that there is a very good reason to look for the European Union to look towards East, towards Ukraine, towards Russia, towards other countries of Eastern partnership. Uh, now, historically, one can see good reasons for that. Uh, I guess that many of you have read uh, uh, the uh, British historian Taylor, A.G.P. Taylor, who wrote a wonderful book about the Habsburg monarchy. And in the final chapter of that book, he describes what the future should look like. And he says that the solution to the problem of Europe is in moving the industrial power from the west to the center and the east. And I think he was right as a historian. Now, much of that program has been achieved already. I think the eastward expansion of the European Union was a major success, has brought additional power, prosperity, freedom to Europe, and it should continue. Historically, it should continue. There are also valid economic reasons for that. Um, Russia is quite open today. Russia speaks about modernization, and modernization is taken seriously. Uh, it is a serious opportunity for the European Union. It is more and more understood that modernization doesn't only mean technological improvement, it also means changes in the legal structure and improvement in the legal system which is necessary for further strengthening of economic and social prosperity of the country. All that is understood. I must say I belong to those who believe that President Medvedev, who has been in the forefront of this activities is serious and uh, honest in this, uh, in this effort and that uh, there are many followers, that there may be more there than one would normally think. I know that there is a great deal of suspicion and there are historical um, factors which contribute to doubts, but my uh, conclusion or my, my opinion uh, at this point is, is as I said. Uh, there are, of course, economic reasons like uh, energy, a need to establish a better link between U European <coughs> Union and uh, Russia and the entire area for the reason of establishing energy security, and also security in a narrower sense of the word. We have seen in the recent developments in NATO-Russia partnership, which demonstrate that the level of confidence has been uh, has been gr growing, that, that we have seen an ascension in that regard. Now, of course, we do not know whether this will last, whether there will be setbacks, but I think it is very positive that we have come to the point where we are today, and that is something that has to be taken advantage of. Uh, I think that it is also clear that uh, all the positive developments that may happen in the field of security, narrowly defined, have to be underpinned by a stronger basis of cooperation, a basis which would have the necessary fabric of economic cooperation that only the European Union can provide. So I think that there are very good security reasons as well to complement what is being achieved in NATO-Russia relations with the NATO-EU relations. Now, this to sketch out the priority number one. I'm not speaking primarily about Ukraine. I would say Ukraine obviously deserves and requires European perspective. 
that has to be there. And other countries of Eastern Partnership also have to be addressed in a manner which serves their legitimate interests as well as the ones of the European Union. Now the second priority relates to the Western Balkans. I believe that here um, uh, the programs of in the program of enlargement is fairly well defined. It is clear what these countries have to do. The European Union has to make sure that the European perspective remains real. But of course the countries in question have to be uh, absolutely clear that they understand that fulfillment of membership criteria is a must. There is no shortcut. There is no way of circumventing the uh, membership criteria. And although there is a lot of goodwill, there also has to be, on the other hand, real progress. And that includes cooperation with the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia in every detail. I'm saying this because sometimes this, uh, uh, this, uh, this element is somewhat blurred in a, in a wider discussion uh, which is uh, permeated by goodwill and good intentions and encouragement and all that, and that's good, and we should have discussions like this. But we have to know that full cooperation with ICTY, including the apprehension of General Mladic, must be a part of the membership criteria. And of course that's something that the countries uh, in question uh, have to understand, and I believe that they do understand. Turkey is, has been waiting uh, for serious negotiations for too long. I believe that there are um, obstacles for, for, fulfillment of, um, for fulfillment of membership criteria. Those obstacles are there, they are real. But we have to be very clear not to allow those obstacles to serve as an excuse for immobility or even as cover for prejudice. That, I think, is a distinction which European Union is not making always with sufficient clarity. And I would like to use this opportunity tonight to make this very clearly. Turkey is a major strategic and economic asset for the European Union, and there is no valid uh, logical reason against its further progress towards membership. Now, that will not happen overnight. Fulfillment of criteria is a requirement there as well. But there should be no excuse for... Uh, uh, for immobility and there should be no cultural or other prejudice. Finally, on visa liberalization. See, we have to think about visa liberalization in new ways, I believe. Uh, so far, uh, we have, uh, in, I say we, meaning people representing the countries of the European Union, have gone through different uh, types of experience. One of them uh, affecting, for example, Slovenia was entering the, uh, entering the Schengen area. And I must say, sometimes this becomes very painful for people traveling to countries in the Schengen area. I myself was a professor at that time when, when Schengen was introduced, and it coincided with, a, with an arrangement which I was making with a young lady from Macedonia who was a doctoral candidate and with whom I was uh, in contact via email. And then at one point I wanted to invite her to Ljubljana for consultations. And that coincided with the days on which Schengen regime was introduced. And this was a huge shock. Now this happened in August of 2006, I believe. And in that, uh, in that month, uh, I didn't have much else to do, so I was concentrating on Schengen procedures. Uh, and finally, I compiled a, a file which was, which was that thick, and it very much looked like a peace treaty, which was necessary for that young lady to be allowed to come to Ljubljana for consultations. Now, 
I'm exaggerating, but only very slightly. I mean, we have to be aware of the fact, <laughs> I have to be aware of the fact that, that, uh, that freedom of movement is a human right. Now, of course, human rights law says that that freedom includes the right to leave one's own country and return to one's own country, but it doesn't include the right to enter any foreign country. That's correct. But I think the liberalization of movement is um, in, uh, in the interest of human rights and has to be seen in that light. Obviously, there are problems, but those problems have to be addressed in a targeted manner, not with a generalized regime which, uh, which prevents ordinary people to communicate. There are thousands of students, journalists, ordinary people who would want to travel more freely. And I think that Europe has to do more to make that happen. We need a broader human base for cooperation with the East, meaning Eastern Europe remaining outside the frontiers of European Union and Russia. We should not be afraid. We should make this happen because that human base will allow us to develop the kind of cooperation needed for the future strengthening of the European Union. Now, I have already started to talk about human rights. Freedom of movement is a human right. But let me conclude with a few remarks on human rights as a fundamental value for the Euro European Union and as a fundamental element of its foreign policy and global role. Obviously, the European Union is based on the principle of human rights and is defined as a system which promotes human rights and human freedom. Much has been achieved, and currently the European Union is preparing to become a party to the European Convention on Human Rights, something that those of you who are studying law and human rights can uh, usefully analyze and see how does, it, how does one make that happen. It's not as simple as one would think. I mean, to, to make a, an entity which is not a state a party to the convention which is meant for states and member states of that entity are already parties to the convention. So, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderfully complex um, question and uh, if anyone of you has any, any, any view on this matter, I would be very happy to listen. I, I know very little about it because it's, it's very recent and I'd be happy to hear your views. Now, um, at home, I think the uh, the agenda of human rights has to be approached with great sensitivity. Sometimes uh, European Union politicians and other public figures take uh, the view that human rights are already guaranteed, that there is not much to do, that in fact what, what we have to deal with are policy issues which allow for a high level of discretion and that things are generally fine. But I think that the whole question of immigration, treatment of immigrant communities and in individual immigrants is much more complex, much more sensitive, and much more, much more in a need for, for a sophisticated policy approach than we currently have in Europe. Now, this is, of course, an easy expression, but a difficult, a difficult task at the same time. I think that in approaching that task, there are certain aspects which, which seem clear enough. I think we, again, have to have a clear sense of hierarchy here. I think the hierarchy should be in dealing with all kinds of ethnic diversities resulting from recent immigration, and that obviously is, is, a, is a challenge in, in Europe. Uh, the hierarchy should be that nothing that is done or uh, enacted should be in contradiction with basic uh, tenets of human rights. Respect for human rights, respect for the rights of others, is a basic requirement. 
Respect for cultural diversity, on the other hand, has its limits. Cultural identities, cultural traditions have to be in conformity with human rights requirements. I think we have to be very clear on that and we have to find the practical expressions of that hierarchy with great clarity. Culture cannot be involved as a justification for human rights violations of any kind. Now, let us think about violations, let us think about the term violations of human rights in this context. Uh, there has to be hierarchy, as I said, between human rights of individuals and norms of traditional culture, and in this kind of situations, human rights uh, norms prevail. Uh, the legal order of the country has to be respected, and the customs of different ethnic, religious, or other communities or immigrant groups have to be adjusted to that. Again, this is a sense of hierarchy, but of course not yet policy. I'm not suggesting that I'm proposing a sufficiently well-defined policy in these matters. The question, what should be the elements of a policy addressing the questions of ethnic diversity resulting from recent migration or current migration? Let me propose a few key elements in a rather abstract way. I believe the first requirement is that, where applicable, linguistic integration of immigrants is a critically important basis for successful social integration more generally. I think we are not paying enough attention to this question, to, to the linguistic side of it. We have to do more. Second, access to health care and especially quality education is another key ingredient, something that is key to upward social mobility. And upward social mobility is the only way in which one can handle these questions of ethnic diversity resulting from recent current migration. Now, this, of course, again, is simple enough. It, it sounds simple. It's, it's much more difficult to develop such simple propositions into comprehensive, meaningful policy. But we have to be clear about the basic ideas. And the basic idea of making sure that linguistic integration is there, making sure that the real opportunities for good quality education are there, and that as a result, the opportunity for upward social mobility is real, these are the ingredients which we have to develop further into a fully-fledged policy. Now, this as much as the agenda for uh, uh, domestic activities or for the activities within the European Union is concerned. Uh, let me say a word or two about the international uh, field or the global agenda. I think there we need, we need a serious reflection and build on successes of the past decades. Um, I see in this room some of my human rights friends Comrades from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, comrades in battle, uh, with whom we talked, Stephanie and Margot, with whom we talked about human rights um, problems of 1970s and 80s. And let us just think how the world looked at that time. Dictatorships in Latin America, communist rule in Eastern Europe, dictatorships in Asia and Africa. Things have changed. The world has improved. Of course, there are still situations which reveal consistent patterns of gross violations of human rights. Yes, they are, but they are much fewer than they were in the past. We have achieved a lot. The world has achieved a lot. And I think one has to learn to build on those successes, and one has to be aware of the complexity of realization of human rights in situations where development, where lifting people out of extreme poverty is an overarching priority for the governments. And obviously, there, European Union has to find 
a finely tuned policy approach which would make its, resolu its, its proposals, its, its, uh, its uh, proposals at the international level acceptable and meaningful. We have to be worried over the fact that at the UN today, over 60% of the UN members regularly vote against the European Union proposals on human rights. Now, we have a problem there. And I, I would suggest reflection which starts from the fact that much has been achieved, that we have a more complex and more demanding agenda to deal with today, that that agenda has much to do with development, and that that agenda would have to include recognition of progress where progress is real. Let, let me just make one, sim, one, one small example. In late 1990s, Indonesia looked like a place where one military rule will be replaced by another military rule. Now, this did not happen. What happened was a succession of presidents of the country, each of whom brought something new and something positive. I'm not suggesting that the situation in that huge, complex country is ideal, but it certainly is much better than it was 15 years ago, and it is promising. And now the question is, how does European Union cooperate with a huge country like that, and how does it, how does it use the positive experience of the past for the benefit of that country and other countries for the future? I could quote other examples. I don't want to be excessively optimistic, but I would like to say that we need a more complex, more nuanced, more sophisticated approach in that regard. Otherwise, European Union will be faced with unnecessary and unproductive difference of opinion and, and conflict of views. Now, uh, the, the European Union also has to get rid of some bad habits that it has acquired over time. It has to avoid being perceived as lecturing or moralizing, vituperating, imposing solutions. I'm not suggesting that EU is doing that, but sometimes the impressions are created. And as you know, in politics, impressions are very often more important from the facts than the facts. And I think that here we have work to do. And we should not underestimate the importance of that work for a strengthened global role of the European Union. I think we have to fully appreciate the magnitude, the importance of that task for the European Union, because European Union is not going to make its global role effective through military means or through other uh, elements of power. But it can do much with its economic power, with its example of success, with its by leadership, by example, and by offering sophisticated, meaningful policy uh, replies to the challenges of development which uh, nowadays characterize most of the world. Now, we have some mechanisms which are still very weak and which shouldn't be overestimated, but they are there. I think that the Universal Periodic Review of the United Nations Human Rights Council is a useful thing. I know it's heavily criticized and many people are disappointed with it, but it is a useful beginning and something that should be built upon. And of course there will be need for new instruments to be developed in the future. And obviously you are a generation who will have the great advantage and pleasure of developing those new instruments. We have done a lot of work on international treaties and implementation mechanisms which, with mechanisms which were largely legalistic, and they have achieved something. But that's only partial achievement. Much more needs to be done. 
So, my friends, in conclusion, I would like to say only a few words. First of all, European Union has to put its house in order. It has to set its foreign policies uh, priorities with better and uh, stronger sense of hierarchy. And it has to make the key areas of its policy making, such as human rights, more sophisticated. That would be a nutshell conclusion of my talk. Uh, the promise of global role is certainly here. That promise is not illusionary. That is a very real opportunity. But of course, the European Union has again to demonstrate its ability to turn a crisis into an opportunity. Leadership will be required. That leadership will come from Brussels institutions and more importantly from nation states. The European Union is not a nation state and therefore it needs nation states to lead. And obviously, any discussion about the future of the European Union should include an expression of hope that such leadership will come and that as a result the crisis will be turned into an opportunity and that the European Union will progress. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that fantastic talk. We have about 20 minutes for questions. Hopefully the stewards have some mics. Could people remember that questions are hopefully short, hopefully involve a question and not too much of a statement, and if they could identify themselves that would also be fantastic. We'll be taking them in groups of three. Lady over there. Hello, uh, I'm a master student here at the LSE, and a very short question would be, since you uh, underlined the role of the member states uh, for the EU to progress player, uh, what do you suggest Slovenia could do or is already doing for that? Thank you. And the gentleman just, just there. Um, I'm, I'm Gable Partos from the Economist Intelligence Unit, and Your Excellency, uh, I'd like to ask you, in relation to the Western Balkans as a priority area, what steps could and should the EU be taking to promote integration enlargement, given that uh, progress recently has been rather slow in relation to most of these countries, apart from perhaps Croatia, although there, too, uh, the dispute with Slovenia has perhaps uh, held back progress in uh, recent times. And secondly, and very briefly, you mentioned visa liberalisation. Which countries do you have in mind, given that in the Western Balkans this now seems to be largely settled? And the, la the lady right at the back. Yes, thank you, I saw her. I agree with His Excellency that expansion is a wonderful thing and that Turkey would in fact be a major strategic and economic addition to the EU. I have one concern though, that he also mentioned that we should not allow obstacles as an excuse for not allowing Turkey immediate entry. My question is this, does he consider having an occupying force of the Turkish army occupying a third of the island of Cyprus, which is an EU member state, does he consider that as an excuse or is that not a legitimate obstacle? 
And shouldn't Turkey show willing by removing their, um, their army from the island in order to have immediate access? Good. Um, let me take uh, these questions one by one. First, what can Slovenia do? Obviously, we are trying to do our best to, first of all, uh, put our own house in order. Uh, Slovenia is a country which has um, a need to undertake certain reforms. We are working on those reforms. We have to do a, a pension reform, which, which has been proposed by the government, for example. We have to consolidate our public finances. We have our um, debt ratio at about 40% of the GDP, which is not too high, but it has to be reduced. Uh, we have our uh, budget deficit at the level of about 5%, which is still not very high, but it has to be reduced to 3% in, in, in two to three years' time. So there are many tasks that we have to do ourselves, and I think that every European Union country has to look towards itself to do the necessary changes and to make sure that it is prepared to contribute to a common cause. Now then, when it comes to common causes, Slovenia was presiding the European Union in 2008, in the first semester. And at that time we have done a lot, uh, we have tried to do a lot in several areas, including in the uh, timetable for EU process on climate change matters generally, including the international negotiations, but also for the targets within the European Union. So I think that that has been a fairly successfully done. We have done some work with regard to the dialogue among cultures and civilizations, which has become an EU policy in that year. It has not been developed sufficiently well in the subsequent period, but it is one of the areas in which we do some work. And obviously, more, more broadly, we take part in all the discussions on all these important questions that I have addressed. So within the European Union, Slovenia tries to behave as a good citizen and tries to make uh, the right things at home and also the right things with regard to the, uh, to the Union as a whole. Sometimes this requires a bit of uh, individual policy decision-making, uh, for example, uh, on, on questions such as convening the OSC summit, uh, we went alone and we supported that idea before the EU uh, was able to, uh, to, to come to a common position. On Palestine, we have occasionally voted alone uh, in the General Assembly and in the Human Rights Council when we saw that the European Union uh, formation of positions is not sufficiently clear, so we went our own way. Uh, that was sometimes criticized as not being sufficiently uh, kind of uh, collectively minded. Uh, but, you know, one has to ponder. Uh, there are several principles in conflict in such situations, and then, of course, I think every country has to be very, very conscientious in making choices. Sometimes those choices uh, allow, uh, require, really, to give priority to an individual opinion rather than, than, than uh, you know, uh, striving for a collective opinion at any cost. Difficult choices, but that's also something which I believe is a contribution to a more comprehensive, more solid, more sophisticated policy making of the European Union as a whole. So these are the examples which I would, which I would quote to answer the question. 
The second question was the question of um, uh, the Balkan countries, which indeed have um, been progressing too slowly. And obviously there is a different agenda with regard to each of them, and uh, one shouldn't generalize too much. In my remarks, I didn't have the time, or that was not the subject of the talk, to go into a detailed analysis of those countries, and <clears throat> I don't propose to offer a detailed analysis at this point. But what I want to stress is this. Uh, with regard to Slovenia-Croatia situation, we have an arbitration agreement which took about six months to formulate and another few months to conclude. That is fairly quick progress, and that progress was accomplished uh, during the year 2009. We are grateful to the European Commission for having done some very useful mediation work at a very high quality, I must say, high quality of legal expertise and high quality of tactical sophistication. All that helped uh, to find a, um, an arrangement which actually can serve as a, as a possible model for all the territorial issues that remain to be, uh, to be decided, some of which are, most of which are not very large, but obviously each territorial issue is sensitive. And, uh, and as I said, uh, that was done. Now Croatia has to handle some of more uh, delicate and, and, and larger, larger questions, including its uh, law and order system and the question of shipyards and their privatization. So these are really big issues which have been there all along and haven't been addressed completely so far. And they, they were the real, the real obstacle to fulfillment of criteria. If you take Bosnia and Herzegovina, on the other hand, there is a clear need for, uh, for further improvement of the political system, which has to be more adjusted to the needs of membership in the European Union. Progress in that regard has been too slow. The efforts of last year have not succeeded. And after the elections, which took place in early October, the new government will be uh, in, a, in a situation in which the expected discussion should lead to results. I think that, that that relates really to the internal system, which of course is the primary responsibility for the political actors within Bosnia and Herzegovina. But others should help. Slovenia is trying to do its part, but others have, have to help as well. One could go on and, and quote different priorities for different countries, and I believe that each of them has a certain agenda of political priorities which have to be fulfilled in order to prepare itself more completely for negotiations on membership. Uh, that, that's where the Balkans uh, situation is. On visa liberalization, I would like to say that what I had in mind was visa liberalization for countries like Ukraine and Russia. Now, again, as I said before, visa liberalization is a process, and that process includes safeguards. It includes the principle of reciprocity. It includes the possibility to make exceptions and to reintroduce limitations should that be necessary. But the direction has to be clear, and I think that one should not see this as an indefinite uh, task or something that, that can be uh, postponed or can be, can be uh, uh, worked on for a long period of time. The third question related to Turkey, and obviously uh, the um, fulfillment of criteria applies there as well, all criteria, including those related to good neighborhood and fulfillment of international obligations. That applies to Turkey as well as the others. But we all know that the Cyprus issue is an issue which has its own regime, so to speak. There are negotiations taking place. 
and those, ne those negotiations should succeed. I was myself working at the United Nations as one of the assistants of Kofi Annan in 2004 when Kofi Annan produced a comprehensive plan for settlement of Cyprus issues. And, those, uh, and that proposal was accepted by some but not by everybody in Cyprus. I think that that proposal was in fact a good basis for solution. It was not yet complete but it was a step in the right direction. I am still unhappy that uh, that step was not taken in 2004 and I would like Cyprus to uh, have a better faith that the negotiations between the Cyprus government and the uh, representatives of the Turkish Cypriot community would succeed. I myself visited Cyprus last month and I had long discussions with President Christofias on this matter. I have full confidence that he is an experienced political leader who would do his utmost to secure agreement. And I believe that as a part of that agreement, the situation in the North can also change to an extent which would allow the progress uh, uh, in every respect, including the further progress of Turkey uh, to, towards full membership. But of course, the problem of Turkey is not that it is at the doors, that the membership is imminent. The problem is that the initial phases of negotiations are taking a long time. And that, I think, has to be, has to be recognized, and the problems <coughs> which impede further and more solid progress, those problems have to be resolved without too much delay. I know that the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, has held a very important consultation in New York last week on the Cyprus question, and I hope that you know, these this efforts will produce results which would then, in turn, allow many good things to happen, uh, including Turkish uh, Turkey's uh, quicker approaching the European Union, as well as, uh, you know, resolution of other problems which resemble the one in Cyprus. I mean, there are many problems that, that resemble the one in Cyprus, and I think that uh, it would be a huge boost towards, towards conflict resolution in, in, in the Caucasus if, if progress in Cyprus was, was achieved. So I'm, you know, I'm really hopeful and I'm really supporting the effort of President Christofias and others. So these are my answers to the questions so far. Um, gentleman, gentleman there, the blue sweater. Oh, <coughs> well, the gentleman there and then I'll take the one on your, on your left. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. I'm a master's student here. Uh, my question for you, you're, you mentioned that the importance in establishing these foreign policy uh, hierarchy, but how easy do you think it's going to be to establish these hierarchies when there's 27 different countries with their own foreign policy goals? I mean, and also, even if a hierarchy is established, don't you think that the foreign policy would be undermined um, if not every country is forced to abide by it? I mean, especially certain major countries, you know, Germany, Britain, France, if they're not forced to go along with the EU line, doesn't that undermine the EU as a foreign policy player? Okay, and the gentleman just on the other side. No, no, the one. Just <laughs> <laughs> be patient. Uh, my question's uh, going back to sort of the the uh, subject as EU as a global player, um, and it sort of focuses outside of the EU in the sense um, you talked about human rights, um, but how would you relate that as a sort of in practicality with relationships with China? And the lady there, please. 
Yes, one aspect I was lacking in the talk and the intervention that the presenter gave is the aspect of dialogue and you engaging with, with wider more dialogue and in investing basically in identifying structures which could ensure sustainable communication with, with other players at the global level. Basically, what I would be interested in to hear your opinion on is whether the EU is actually ready to commit on equal footing to discuss certain decisions it proposes at the global level in order to avoid situations where 60% of the decisions are basically being voted down. Please. Uh, now, on, on hierarchy, uh, obviously this is something not easily achieved and nation states too have problems with developing a proper hierarchy in their foreign policy formulation. That applies to all actors which strive to have a foreign policy, small and uh, monolithic, if I may use this word somewhat, um, <laughs> somewhat simplistically. Um, <coughs> countries have fewer problems than larger and more complex countries. Uh, when I worked for the United Nations, um, uh, it was you know, common knowledge that waiting for the policy formulation in Washington takes time because, uh, because Washington is a complex place, United States is a complex system, although it is a single state, but still a complex single state. So policy formulation, policy priorities takes time, it's not easy to achieve, and of course for the European Union the problem is uh, exacerbated by the fact that this is a system of 27 members. Uh, what, what I would like to, to say by way of answering the question is that uh, there shouldn't be any sense of imposition involved. I mean, the European Union should be able to develop its priorities democratically and without creating a sense of imposition. Uh, I think that that's doable, but that requires careful and uh, and perhaps extended discussion. Sometimes we have to realize certain realities which, which are not easy to accept by everybody. For example, when the European Union established what is called the Euro-Mediterranean Union in 2008, that was accompanied by great hopes that the Mediterranean dimension of its foreign policy will progress and flourish very quickly. Now we see that that progress is not forthcoming. And there are very real reasons for that. As long as the Middle East problem, the Palestinian issue, remains what it is, it will be very difficult to have a fully-fledged Mediterranean policy for the European Union. And one has to recognize this kind of very real obstacles. And that should be part of the discussion on priorities. Okay, we cannot make much progress here, but we may, can make immediate progress elsewhere. This is this choices, this pondering is never easy, and I'm not suggesting that the European Union should should find a shortcut there. There, there is a need for real discussion. I don't think that imposition is the way forward, uh, and in that context, uh, it's very important to have a very careful process uh, of uh, interaction between smaller groups of larger states and the entirety of the European Union. I have seen uh, the, uh, the, 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 the eyebrows raised at the time of Deauville meeting uh, in, uh, on 19 October this year, the, the presidents of France and Russia and, and the Chancellor of Germany. Uh, that, of course, has given rise to questions in different parts of the European Union. Uh, somebody suggested that there should be a selection of six major countries in the European Union who would then take the main decisions. I think that 
idea of the rectorate of six is a very bad idea. I, I, I don't think it is a good replacement for what we currently have. What would help, however, is that those meetings of smaller groups of larger states are sufficiently transparent and sufficiently open for discussion between the membership as a whole. And I think that there is no way of avoiding it if we want really to have a coherent and meaningful system of foreign policy of the European Union. Uh, the next question was about human rights in China, obviously, this is, a, this is a matter which would require a very serious discussion within the European Union, and, they, and the discussion will have to ponder several very interesting questions. China has been able to lift out of poverty hundreds of millions of people in the past years, in the past two decades or so. How are we going to make sure that it is understood that this real success is fully appreciated in the European Union? This element should be part of any discussion on human rights in that huge and hugely important country. There is no way of avoiding it. There is no way towards ideological simplifications. We have to look at the complexity of the situation and recognize those achievements which merit recognition. I'm putting this somewhat provocatively before you because I think that precisely that aspect is lacking in our EU discussions. And there may be other aspects which also require further discussion and that discussion hopefully will take place. I don't see it happening, but I, I hope it will. Uh, finally, on the question of dialogue with other players in uh, larger systems, um, there the situation is not getting any simpler in the, uh, at present. Just take the example of G20 and the way how EU is making itself a part of a G20. I mean, there are six EU members uh, involved in G20 today. Is this good? Does that help? Now, G20 is an informal group. doesn't raise, by definition, the questions of national sovereignty. It does, however, raise the question of national interest and, and economic priorities and political priorities of uh, various countries in the European Union. But, it, but is it really wise to have six members in the, in the G20? How does one move the situation from G20 towards formal institutions of international economic cooperation, including the United Nations? Because let us be clear, in the long run, uh, G20 is likely to be ever more resented if it doesn't gain the kind of support and legitimacy which can only come from an all-inclusive organization where everybody is represented. I mean, the, the, the fact that there is a select group which represents 80% of global economy is positive. Yes, it, it's good that it is there, but it has to be brought in an, in, into an appropriate relationship with the United Nations. I'm not suggesting it has to be part of the United Nations system, but it has to interact with the United Nations in a manner which would strengthen the legitimacy of policies which are articulated through the G20 mechanism. And for the European Union, the first question there is how many countries should be represented in the G20. Maybe the number could be reduced. Maybe m some of the discussion should take place elsewhere, perhaps in the International Monetary Fund, which is now in the process of changing its structure uh, along the lines of the changed economic realities of the world. Maybe there is part, a part of the discussion should take place there. I do not have a prescription. I don't have a clear formula, but I see that there is a need for improving 
the techniques and the, um, the, the, the um, ways in which dialogue is pursued. Now, I spoke about 60% of human rights initiatives which, uh, which lead to negative vote by, uh, by, uh, by member states of the United Nations. Uh, and there, I think what I can think of at present, I have already said, I think that we need a kind of a review of human rights policies, see how to recognize developmental achievement and other relevant, real achievement for human rights, make that part of our overall approach, and then move on with a critical focus on those questions which require critical attention and criticism. That, of course, will be necessary, but it has to be much more uh, conscientiously and much more completely done. Uh, it's a tribute to your wonderful talk, your very full answers to all the questions and our interest uh, in you. That I think there's still a lot of questions, but unfortunately we have to wrap up at 8 o'clock and it's already past 8 o'clock. Before we wrap up, I've just got a series of announcements. The first is a bit of PR for us and our partners, ACPO, which, uh, which are the next two talks in the series on Perspectives of Europe, which are involve the Hungarian Foreign Minister and President of the European Parliament, respectively, on the 6th and 7th of December. Secondly, as a courtesy to the President, could, you, could I ask you just to let him leave the stage before you all leave? <laughs> Thirdly... So no mass exodus, please. No, no mass action yet. At least keep it until after, after we've left. Thirdly, to thank you for coming here, and partly, I suppose, because the Christmas tree decorations have all be, already been out three weeks in the British uh, streets, we've got three presents for you, which I will uh, pass on to you. Firstly, a book by our director. Uh, <laughs> secondly, perhaps, particularly tasteful, uh, LSE baseball cap, which we only give to heads of state. Uh, some choose to wear it. Nelson Mandela was one, some don't. So there's no, no pressure there. And, and thirdly, we have a certificate here to thank you very much for the wonderful talk indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. I will wear the cap, but first I will try it in more intimate environment. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. It was very nice of you. Thank you. Thank you.